Welcome again to Language Made Difficult, a magically delicious part of the Specgram podcast. I'm your host, David Peterson. Back again with me in the equipment closet of the John Wilkins Conference Room is two-time runner-up for the World's Most Fastidious Man competition, Trey Jones. Hey, everybody. To his left is the man who would be king of the fisher folk, Keith Slater. Great to be with you guys. And joining us live via satellite from a hedge maze in Barcelona, Bill Sproul. Hey. Also joining us today on the program is special guest Gabe Olson. Thanks for joining us, Gabe. Hi, thanks. You may have heard or seen Gabe's linguistic stand-up routine on the SpecGram podcast back on May 10th of last year. If not, go there now. It's definitely a must. So, Gabe, what was the story behind that routine? Well, I was actually surprised anybody laughed because a lot of times I think I'm the only one who finds myself funny. So I decided to try out some stand-up and see if anybody else found me funny. And a few people did laugh, so that was good. Hooray! Was the audience, was it for like a linguistics department or was it just a general audience? Uh, no, it was actually just in a bar, but luckily there were enough students there who understood the jokes. So, <laughs> well, I, Actually, I'm now much more impressed. For some reason, I assumed it was just linguistics professors or linguistics undergraduates that you can get, you know, normal or as I call them, real people to laugh. That is extremely <laughs> impressive. So nice job, Gabe. All right. Well, thanks for joining us, Gabe. And here we go with more lies, damn lies and linguistics. To get us started, I turn it over to Trey. Jones. You guys know the drill. We've got three language-related items. Two are true, one is false, and you guys have to figure out which is which. And after you make your overly educated guesses, we will discuss. All right, our theme this time is unsubstantiated claims. <laughs> so claim number one, Henry Sweet claimed that the Germanic rounding of A to O is, quote, doubtless the result of unwillingness to open the mouth widely in the chilly and foggy air of the North. Number two, Chomsky and Holly claim conventional orthography is a near-optimal system for the lexical representation of English words. Claim number three, Sir William Jones is famous for claiming that Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin obviously, quote, have sprung from some common source. He also lumped in Gothic, Celtic, Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew. All right, who wants to go first? I'm going to throw my hat in the ring. All right. I don't know much about anything about this whole language deal, but I do know a couple of things. First, I know that I'll believe it if you say that anybody claimed that Sanskrit, Latin, Greek, Arabic, Hebrew, that if anybody says that those all came from the same source and you tell me that they said that, I'm going to believe you. That one I'm going to say is true because yeah, anybody at any point in time will say that. I bet even Noam Chomsky will have said that. And speaking of Chomsky and Halley, taken separately, you know, they're really two strange individuals. Put them together and they're pretty much a diabolical force for evil. So, of course, of course they're going to say that English writing, their English writing system is perfect. Uh, because, you know, we all think it's terrible. They say, oh, no, it's actually the best writing system in the history of the world. Yeah, yeah. All right. That one is true. And by process of elimination, the first one is false. That's my answer. Okay. Who wants to go next? All right. I'll take a stab at it. Although, first, I want to protest your connection of the label unsubstantiated claims <laughs> with statements about historical linguistics, because we try not to remind people about substantiation when it comes to historical linguistics. Thank you. I should know these, and I'm doubtful on them, but I know that someone did claim that rounding was the result 
result of unwillingness to open the mouth. It sounds like the kind of thing Henry Sweet would say, especially if he was around someone he thought he could productively annoy. So (laughs) I'm going to say number one is true. Similarly, number two does match what I remember of Chomsky and Halley's approach, which was basically to reconstruct the entire history of English and jam it into people's heads. (laughs) (laughs) That leaves number three. This is why I'm worried, because he did lump some other languages in, some of which sort of stayed, some of which didn't. I don't think he subbed in Arabic and Hebrew, though, because he would have known Hebrew, or at least some Hebrew, and that adamantly resists being grouped in very like that. So I'm going to say number three is the false one. Okay. Keith, why don't you go next and let our guest go last? I think I agree with Bill, uh, but for different reasons. Yeah, Henry Sweet, you know, Sweet's own name had the vowel E in it, and uh, so he personally could have been not really expected to have much experience with A and O, so he wouldn't have known that his <laughs> argument was nonsensical. So uh, he probably made that He probably made that claim. Similarly, Chomsky and Halley are rumored to have used a system of master's students as scribes for their papers, and I'm guessing that they didn't have much direct experience with the English writing system themselves. Mm-hmm. So they probably couldn't have been expected to know that their claim was nonsensical. But I think that Sir William Jones, as Bill said, he probably knew enough Hebrew and Arabic to know that that was a nonsensical claim and he probably wouldn't have made it. So I'm going to go with that one as the false one. All right, Gabe? Well, I was thinking first that uh, one is definitely true because uh, that's the Henry Sweet claim to Germanic rounding. That one's definitely true because I have very strong personal anecdotal evidence that in Canada, that is why we have Canadian raising is uh, (laughs) because it's cold up here. And so no one wants to say about they have to say about because they just if you open your mouth too long you'll you'll freeze and actually this is why here where i am in southern alberta we have very mild winters we actually don't have as much rounding so i actually do say about because much warmer and then i I know chomsky and halley claimed conventional orthography is a near optimal system this one, because I'm an undergrad, I believe everything anybody says about Chomsky and everything that Chomsky says. <laughs> so I, I have to say that one's true. But then the third one I know is false about Sir William Jones and uh, Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin. Because given that all languages stem from the Tower of Babel, I know that any uh, study into historical linguistics is actually bunk. So there, <laughs> there's really no point in trying to relate any languages together. So I have to say three is false. Okay. Trey, Trey, did you trick me? Did you get me, Trey? Uh, yeah. Oh! Bill, we've gone over the rules. If you have good factual evidence, don't volunteer to go early. Because then everybody else just copies you. Yeah. Or at least volunteer to go before me, punk. So that was good. That was good. <laughs> In fact, Henry Sweet did make the claim about Germanic rounding. Uh, Chomsky and Halley did make their claim about the orthography of English. And humorously enough, uh, Jeff Pullum replied that English orthography is so insane, it makes the underlying representation in the sound pattern of English look sensible. <laughs> and um, so Sir William Jones is famous for saying that Sanskrit, Greek, and Latin were obviously related. He did actually know Gothic, Celtic, Persian, Arabic, and Hebrew. And he linked correctly Gothic, Celtic, and possibly Persian. He, he didn't try to link Arabic and Hebrew into Proto-Indo-European. And then on a personal note, I'd like to point out that not, not only do Sir William and I share a last name, we also share a birthday. February 31st. That's it. <laughs> and uh, do you share the knighthood also? No, we're not actually related, so I didn't inherit anything from him or anything. Um, real quick to go over the scores now. Oh, God. You said no more tricks, Trey. That was a trick. <laughs> Unbelievable. 
letting you talk yourself into a wrong answer is not really a trick. <laughs> sort of standard operating procedure, though. I would like to point out in my defense that it, had they been using rational behavior, they would have not agreed with anything I said. Um, I, I mean, ba- simple Bayesian reasoning would suggest that they should not agree with me. Uh, actually, that is incorrect because you have been right eight out of 13 times. Oh, You're asking the wrong question. Goodness. <laughs> and uh, Keith and David have been right six, and our guests collectively now have been right three out of five. Good job, Gabe. I am still at only six points because I only get a point when two of you get it wrong. So you, me, and Keith are tied? Yep. That tie's going to break this next time. Just you wait. <laughs> <laughs> I've got it going on. I, I'm, I'm, I'm going to focus up. I'm going to bring it next time. All right. No more of this. Bill, I'm coming for you. Well, anyway, thanks for joining us, Gabe. Thank you. We're going to take a break and hear a word from one of our many lucrative sponsors. And after that, we're going to have a bit of language news. So stick around. If you are lonely, tired, ugly, or unhappy in any way, it is probably because you do not speak Esperanto. Everyone knows that really happy people can all speak our language. Others have made the switch. Do not be left out of the fastest growing trend in language. Learn Esperanto. Join the team today. Now for some language news. There's absolutely nothing more linguistically worthy of our attention than animals that display basic language-like abilities. Over at a replicated typo, they've taken a look at a recent paper out of the University of St. Andrews that examines chimpanzees' gestures. Apparently, they have satisfactorily demonstrated that these chimpanzees have 66 gestures, 24 of which are shared with other apes. Uh, They were able to demonstrate that the gestures are unique, that is, they don't derive from performing a particular action itself, and used by a wide variety of different chimps and apes. Uh, So I guess it's the same question we all keep asking ourselves. Did we descend from apes or from a gigantic plate of spaghetti? Your thoughts, Trey? (laughs) I don't think that this has really any bearing on whether or not we descended from chimps. That's too bad. Which we didn't, but we did descend from apes. I think the problem there is that people are actually going to take this and talk about the the descent of language, and there was already some implication in the article that this had something to do with the the genesis of language, and someone's someone's going to say that this shows that human language had gestural origins, and while that's that's possible, this isn't really evidence. It's actually possible, it's logically possible, that other apes didn't develop fully formed language because they started with a gestural system, and while we were grunting and heaving and hoeing and stuff, we actually came up with a, a more robust system, and that, in fact, gestural language as a language origin is a dead end, Hmm. which is different from having a fully formed uh, language capability and then uh, having gestural languages like ASL. Oh, okay. All right. Uh, Well, that makes sense. (laughs) But it isn't funny. Sorry. No, 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 no. It is a a form of comment. (laughs) Well, I had a methodological question about this article, and I admit I didn't go back and read the original research. I just read the summary on a replicated typo, since that's the link that you sent me. But it it mentions here that the researchers made recordings of these chimps in the wild, and then they analyzed the recordings. It does not mention whether these were audio recordings or video recordings. (laughs) I think this makes a difference. And I just wonder if any of you had a feeling. I mean, if these were audio recordings, then this is worthless research. Well, okay. Actually, no, there is a difference. Uh, And oddly enough, this is something that only uh, CODAs, uh, children of deaf adults, know. There is a sound difference between gestures. For example, you can hear this gesture, right, which is actually distinct from this gesture. Hey, this is a family show. Don't make that gesture. (laughs) Uh, It's 
funny because it's true. Well, I think what I took away from this, these these were my thoughts on this. I mean, you know, they've drawn all these conclusions about these apes waving their arms around and whatever. But their conclusion that, you know, the gesture is indicative of something has to be false. Because in my experience, absolutely nothing is indicative of anything. <laughs> yeah, it's true. All the things that we do, you know, words that we say, gestures that we make, and you know, all that stuff, we just do it just because it makes sense. That's just the way it is. When I say, I mean, when I say, um, it just makes sense. That's why I say it. I didn't realize you were a post-postmodern linguist. (laughs) I was left with a few questions about this. One was when David said that they satisfactorily proved this, is that a kind of highly persuasive factorial analysis, satisfactorial analysis? (laughs) It sounds like something SPSS would do, but I, I haven't been able to make it do that. The other thing is that they seem to be talking about language as being based on gestures in general. Only Italian. (laughs) I think what they should have been looking at more is the way the chimps in the study were using a combination of a backwards reach followed by a flinging motion. (laughs) Because human language is actually descended from that. It's semantically specialized in a number of different ways. And then at some point, our hominid ancestors started using the gesture to refer to their bad opinions of their compatriots' gestures. In other words, language actually developed from prescriptivism. (laughs) Okay, this necessitated a type of complexification of the coding system and brought recursion with it because you just have to with that, okay? Uh, Among the other problems with the study, for example... What are the parameters that let you say there are 66 kinds of gesture? What are you lumping together? I I don't think they took into account the unusual importance of the flinging gesture. You know, it's funny you should mention that because the image schema that you get with the backward, the drawn hand, and then the flinging of the object... That really is what spoken language is all about. You know, we find our victims, we prepare our words in our brain hand, if you will, and then we fling it by means of our our larynx and our tongue and our articulators at our victim. And then they have to deal with it and clean it up. They have to clean our words off of their face. Uh, And sometimes our spittle. And that's literal, not figurative. I think we just lost about half our audience because you just metaphorically threw poo with your mouth. (laughs) (sighs) There was an article in Speculative Grammarian a few years ago, which I'm forgetting the name of, which argued that the stone tools that we dig up now from uh, Stone Age people were actually the words used by early porn forms of human communication that people would shape into the the form appropriate for the message and then fling at each other. (laughs) That is correct. It was the the language of prehistory by Mary Greenberg and Joseph Ruin. Yes. Exactly. Ah. Exactly. I remember it well. So we have confirmation is what you're saying. Well, we have a confirming theory, but we can't say much in defense of the theories that appear in speculative grammarian. (laughs) Yeah, I think that was the origin of the expression, slings and stones may break my bones, but words will severely lacerate me. <laughs> Very good, Bill. Actually, the article opens with a similar rhyme. Sticks and stones may break my bones, and words used to hurt a lot, too. There you go. Very close, very close. I like Bill's more refined version. Uh, uh, yes, I do think that was better. 
to move away from the uh, metaphorical poo mouth here, um, the, <laughs> I think one of the things that we really important things we should take away from this article is that we all need to work the phrase ontogenetic ritualization into our work. And oh, is, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Well, and, and crucially, you need to spell ritualization with the S instead of a C. Yeah. You, do, oh, you don't God, even have to spell it. After you use the phrase ontogenetic ritualization a few times, you just <laughs> oh. say onto. <laughs> but that first and time, everyone knows where you're going with that. Right. So that, you don't have been, to continue it. But that first time I you use the S because it's more classy. So say after that first time, you, I mean, just the first time, though, you have to use the S because it's much more classy. But, <laughs> yes. but Keith is right. You could just call it OR. <laughs> Ah, delightful. Well, anyway, um, yet again, you've tuned into Language Made Difficult, and we've solved one of the world's pressing questions. So, well done, boys. All right, no more monkey business. It's now time to discuss the best thing in the world, literally. Japanese researchers, and follow closely because this is true, Japanese researchers have developed a device called a delayed auditory feedback device, or if they take my advice, a daft gun. What it does is simple. You point it at someone speaking, press the button, it records that person's speech, and it plays it back to them at a delay of 0.2 seconds. What does that do, you ask? Well, you know when you're on the phone with someone and they put you on speakerphone and suddenly you hear your own voice through that phone's speakers and you kind of stop talking? Well, that's exactly what this gun does. So literally, you can point this gun at someone who's talking and silence them. There are a ton of issues this gun's very existence raises, so let's get things going with Bill. Of course, my first reaction to this was simply, that's awesome, right? <laughs> I mean, how, how can you not have that reaction to that? <laughs> but I do have one potential complaint and then also a suggestion. The complaint is that this will raise the same sort of specter as Bell Labs used to when it kept creating this expectation that linguistics would do something. <laughs> All right. You know, like do something observable and cool. <laughs> Bell Labs kind of differentiated out in different directions and kind of vanished. And so we, we were past that phase into the modern era where everyone realizes that what linguistics is supposed to do is talk about the abstract mathematical relationships between sets that could be existent if they knew what was good for them. <laughs> but instead, you know, they bring it right back. The second, and this again is motivated by uncontrollably realizing how cool this is, despite the problem I just described, is that if they could just reverse the temporal relationship and play your speech at <laughs> you point two seconds before you said it, they could actually prevent people from thinking. All right. Now, under normal circumstances, that's impossible because you have to predict what someone's going to say, and it's hard to do that, but not with politicians. Ooh. <laughs> okay, and PR people. <laughs> and so this could actually bring periods of calm to political debates. <laughs> that's wonderful. Well, personally, I think this thing was just, it was made for mischief. That's its purpose, uh, and that's why it excites me so much. It needs to be small enough that I can take it everywhere I go surreptitiously. I, you know, it's handheld right now, but it's, it's rather bulky. People are going to see me carrying it. I need to be able to pull it from my pocket at any point in time and, you know, use it discreetly, as it were. I mean, um, you know, you, know, you, you thought, thought that laser, laser pointed... Point 
So David has just typed me a message and says, Trey, are you pointing that stupid gun at me right now? Uh, I have to admit, I did in fact get hold of a prototype and I was in fact pointing it at David. (laughs) It's a lot of fun. (laughs) He says it's not funny. Does everyone else agree? (laughs) I think it's funny. I agree with the funny part. I don't agree with the not part. (laughs) See, this is exactly why I wish I had had one of these at the last linguistics conference I attended, you know? And in fact, I think linguistics conferences are to be standard issue, but I can't decide who ought to be the one in the audience or the moderator. Who is it that should hold the device? What do you all think? (laughs) That would be if the moderator had it, right? You have a a finite amount of time. (laughs) (laughs) Get the book to pull you off stage. They just point the gun at you and you can't talk anymore. Having been a moderator, I can tell you it doesn't matter who comes to the session with it. The moderator will end up with it and use it. <laughs> okay. Well, if you will allow me to talk this time, you know, sure. just throughout your grace tray. <laughs> exactly. The, this laser, you know, if you think about at concerts, you, you've probably seen, you know, somebody in the audience will have a laser pointer and they'll shine it on the person performing. And that's annoying and potentially dangerous if they get it in their eyes. But this thing, yeah. Not only could a moderator use it as a concert, but you could take it anywhere and silence anybody who's speaking or singing. Think about, for example, just a rock concert with the lead singer, the State of the Union Address, the Pope giving a Mass, the Academy Awards, your parents lecturing you. Can you imagine the power that the holder of this device will have? Which I guess raises an important question. What defense, if any, is there against this gun? I have an answer to that. Okay. Uh, in the article that we read, down in the comments section, someone mentioned, what if you use noise-canceling headphones? Oh. Because that would cancel, you know, it would counteract the um, the sound waves as they're, before they could get to your ears, right? That sounds really good, but the, the one thing that I worry about is we might see something out of, like, out of the movie Scanners with exploding heads if it goes too far because you have your voice, <laughs> a delayed copy of your voice, a near but never quite perfectly real-time inverted noise-canceling copy of the delayed copy of your voice on your head at once. And there's got to be a little bit of leakage, maybe of your brains out your ears. And I predict it would melt your Wernicke's area and make your Broca's area glow in the dark. And I, I don't know. As we've alluded to, right, and the author indicates this too, that this is sort of the thin end of the wedge for a totalitarian takeover of everything. I can't decide if I'm for or against that until I know where linguists will stand in the new world order. So, if the linguists are the ones wielding the guns, I think we know where they stand. Yep, yep. Um, <laughs> that would nicely eliminate people's sentences that they find grammatical, but which do not support your theory. <laughs> mm. that, that's an important thing. This is way too practical. We need to have some right. sort of theoretical use for it. That would be good. Data suppression. <laughs> I, no, no, no. It's, or, or it's, language data, it, it's data improvement. Ah. You, you have to think about it the right way. Right, right, right. I just suddenly had a thought. Remember a, a couple episodes ago, we talked about how toddlers don't listen to themselves when they talk. Ah. So we need to point one of these at, at some toddlers. And I see there are two possible outcomes. One, right. one is that it doesn't work because they don't listen to themselves. And that would be fascinating and linguistically interesting. And the other is that it does work and it shuts them up, in which case you can make a mint selling it to parents. Oh, okay. nice. <laughs> but think about it. No, we actually should. That's a, that's a very good point. We should contact the authors of that paper. They need to know about this because now we can actually show them whether or not they're right. And if somehow we could do this on live television, so like, you know, just have a, have a moderator. So, 
You ran this experiment. These were your results. Are you ready to put them to the test? 40 minutes later, because of commercials, they finally tested out. And, you know, <laughs> yeah, and, you know, they were potentially humiliated on live television. This is brilliant and could generate, I think, a lot of money for linguistics departments around the country. And if it doesn't, just as long as the linguists have the guns, they're not going to be competing with the physics department anymore. Well, what could they do? What could they do? <laughs> oh, it's brilliant. Hey, you know, another practical application that I would like to see is uh, we could use this to test this chimpanzee's research, the gestural research that we just talked about. If you just modify the gun slightly so that it's a gestural feedback device, we could check whether it similarly causes chimpanzees to stop gesturing when they receive this uh, <laughs> delayed feedback, imitating their own gestures. So that would check whether that's really language or not. Right. So you put virtual reality goggles on the chimps, <laughs> and then you just have a, de- a 0.2 second delay video. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Do you think that there there is some sort of a visual version of this for deaf signers? Like uh, they see videos of themselves signing but slightly delayed? Or do you just need a mirror? It's a mirror, but it needs to be a, a time delay mirror. Right, oh. a mirror's not delayed. Oh, right, right. Well, we have plenty of those. At least if I if everything I've read in books is true, and I assume that everything I read in a book is true. <laughs> As a highly respected language-related podcast... We at Specgram naturally review all sorts of language-related products. Books, articles, delayed auditory feedback devices. Should any group of Japanese researchers need any sort of product of theirs tested, <laughs> we'd be happy to help. We're here for you. Up next, uh, some more prescriptivist confessions, but first, a word from our sponsor. Language Made Difficult is brought to you by ICHL, the International Consortium of Humorless Linguists. ICHL urges you to stop listening to this drivel and get back to work. And we're back. Well, it's that time again. As defenders of language in the shores of Linguistiana, we are, of course, required to defend any and all varieties of language, be they standard, technical, jargon, or slang. Even we of the Golden Fleece, though, have our limits. And over the next few minutes, we will share with you some of what irks us about the, dare I say it, misuse of English. Who would like to begin our Chautauqua? I'll go first. One of the things that really gets me is when people misuse begging the question. Mm. The correct prescriptivist usage is that you have an assumption that basically implies your conclusion in, in your argument. But the way people use it, of course, is that as if it were begging for a particular question to be asked. Mm, yeah. I realize that the use of beg in the, the correct form is is outdated, but it makes me kind of sad because there's really no other snappy phrase for what begging the question is. You know, you can say implicit assumptions or circular reasoning, but they're not as snappy and they're not as specific. And it just kind of makes me sad that that good snarky line is no longer really usable because people don't know what you mean. Have you checked to see if there's an older version in Latin, the snappy language? (laughs) Oh, that would be a a good substitute. (laughs) Well, uh, that would give me esoteric points, but I don't think it would, you know, I'm, I'm going for snarky. Okay, well, that just begs the question, Trey. If we want a new phrase, what is it going to be? I I think that we are faced with the fact that beg the question has jumped the shark. (laughs) Finally mix those two. So now I think it falls to us to create a new one. Something snappy, something good, and perhaps say goodbye to our old friend, Beck the Question. Mm. Uh, Pull a Peterson? (laughs) (laughs) That's got a nice Uh, alliteration. That's snappy. That's snappy. It turns out that Petitio Principi... Is the oh. earlier Latin form for begging the question. And I think you could deliver that in a fully snarky manner if you wanted to. Wow. So it had a lot of, I, I didn't quite catch it, it had a lot of peas in it. <laughs> 
Petitio Principi. Should and then when somebody goes, what does that mean? You could say pulling a uh, 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 Yeah, <laughs> except I think probably in church Latin it would be something like Petitio Principi or something like that. Now, the downside to that is that about 50% of the younger population will automatically assume you're making some Harry Potter reference. Oh. <laughs> Pulio like Petersonius. <laughs> I think middle school students will be absolutely convinced at that point you're making an untoward suggestion. <laughs> and- oh, you're right. That's terrible. Uh, boy. Uh, Next topic, please. We, yeah, we should all be grateful for J.K. <laughs> Rowling for inventing Latin. Okay, who would like to go next? Well, I have something that just really bugs me, and that's what you might call, I'm sure there's a technical term for it, copular verb reduplication. You know, the thing is, is that, the mm. problem is, is that yeah. this bugs me, and you just hear it over and over again. You even see it in technical writing sometimes when, oh, yeah. when the journal editor is sleeping. Written by me. <laughs> Honestly, there's two things that I that bug me about this, that both of them are places I'm afraid this might go in English. One is that introducing reduplication like this in English is going to lead to a an overwhelming number of tiring MA theses on the topic of reduplication in English. <laughs> you don't want any of those things to have to read, right? And the second thing is that reduplication is a slippery slope. It might lead to triplication or quadruplication mm. or multiplication, which sounds like math, and I don't want to go there. I'm sure this bothers you, too. What that is, 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 I think, is, is, is. Is, is bad. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. See, see. Well, Keith, I think you're safe from the dissertations the MA theses because there was an article in the early to mid nineties by someone David in cognitive Tug- linguistics David, on that. David Tug wrote, yeah. Ah, right. Okay, so you could block graduate students with that article. Um, <laughs> that's, that's true. There has been a publication. Yeah. Right. I was trying to come up with a with a quadruplication of is, and the closest I could get would be some sort of Clintonian thing along the lines of the thing is is what the meaning of is is. <laughs> is is what the meaning of is is or isn't. The problem with what that is 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 that yes. <laughs> there's three. Yes. <laughs> All right. Well, that's our homework to come up with four. <laughs> Anyway, it bugs me. People should stop it. Yeah. Who would like to go next? Is it is it me or is it Bill? I have a pair of complaints, although okay. they're linked. It has to do with the use of the words experience and system in advertising to refer to just about anything that you want to sell. Basically, experience is used for intangibles or even tangibles. Like instead of did the lawnmower work, it's like, did you find your lawn mowing experience functional? <laughs> All right. it, it's not a lawnmower. It's a lawn mowing experience. It's not a website. It's an internet interaction experience, you know, that kind of thing. There's an argument for that based on perceptual psychology in that anything is an experience. <laughs> I mean, uh, vomiting is an experience. Having a wart is an experience. Stubbing your toe is an experience. They're all experiences. But when I hear that, I basically just want the advertiser to have to spend at least 20 minutes filling out forms explaining why the noun for the object or the thing they're talking about could not be used. The other is the use of the word system in the same kind of uh, way. It's not a toothbrush. It's a tooth cleaning system. Mm. 
okay? It's not a stick. It's a poking system, you know, that kind of thing. It is it is the sort of painting of fanciness upon whatever you're wanting to use the word for. And it makes perfect advertising sense. It was probably funny for the first 10 minutes, but um, <laughs> it, it has gotten old. Well, it's just because they found a way to systematize the experience. Right. It's because of its enhanced functionality. Yeah, there you go. Uh, and so, you know, we can we can ask you afterwards if you enjoyed that systematization experience. Oh, I need antacids now. <laughs> I think SpecCat agrees with you. Poor SpecCat. Well, mine is, I think, a pretty simple one, but it's pervasive. And for some reason, I just can't get over it. And it is different than versus different from. Ultimately, the adjective different derives from the verb differ. And I don't think anybody in their right mind would ever say, my opinion differs than yours. Nobody would say that. It's just impossible. And yet everybody will say, my opinion is different than yours, as opposed to different from yours, which is what it should should be what it should be actually my opinion is different to yours oh god no did you really just say that Uh, he's been traveling or something he's Uh, been traveling or something oh gosh Uh, pretty soon you're just going to start throwing in that and this is what will happen we're approaching a point where all prepositions in english will be completely interchangeable Uh, my opinion different differs over yours what i'm saying is different under that well see there you go then we'll just have this sort of functional preposition that has has that sort of prepositional, it has no actual inherent meaning, and then it'll all be the connotations that go with it. So my opinion is different over yours implies superiority. Not only is it different, it's better because Ooh. it is above. Actually, I like that. <laughs> <laughs> I thought using a totally unexpected preposition just meant you were doing math. <laughs> Please explain. Because it, well, it's like, you know, you map something over a set for no apparent reason. I can dig up some more examples, but math uses funny prepositions for things. Well, see, that's because you haven't properly internalized the systematicity of the experience of the mathematics, because that actually, if you have the right internal metaphorical image, it is over the set. It's got you there. I promise. But you have to internalize the systematicity of the mathematical experience. <laughs> So it has to be under an assumption that it's over the set. You got to experientialize it, you know. See, we'd be better off if we just replaced all nouns with system and all verbs with function and and all prepositions with one single preposition. Let's pick two because it's pretty uh, <laughs> pretty broad already. No, no, and, actually, uh, there's there's already a consensus that large numbers of university students have reached that when you're not sure about a preposition, you replace it with a. Uh, Oh, yeah, that's a good one, too. Yeah, yeah. Well, that was good. That was helpful. I I think now we're ready to take up the mantle once again. So, good show, chaps. That's all the time we have on Language Made Difficult. Join us next time when we tell you which language is better, Ukrainian or Tamil. Thanks for listening. Outtakes. Whatever. The whole point is to make sure David gets them wrong, so don't give him any clues. (laughs) Speaking of which, Trey, do you remember who won the WNBA championship in 1999? I do know the correct answer, which is I don't care. Everybody's closed their refrigerators. Okie doke, are we ready? As ready as we'll ever be. No, I'm, I'm here. Ah, ah, good, good. That sounds just like him, too. Okay, creditable job there, David. Thank you. All right. Yeah, don't tell everybody how professional a show we run here. Welcome again to Language Made Difficult. Oh, I forgot to change that. Okay, just one sec, just one sec. 
Um, See, that's what's sad is that David tries to win and Keith tries to be funny and they're tied. <laughs> so I did my homework and I can't get four ises in a row, but I can get 11 hads. I know that one. Oh, no, I don't. I haven't heard it with 11 before. James, while John had had had, had 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 a better oh. effect on the teacher. Yeah, that's more than the way I've done it. Yeah. Oh, wow. That's too many. You can fairly easily get things longer than that. You just say, as an example, we might cite the following 20 head sequence. (laughs) (laughs) See, it's easy. Markler. I've heard the Dutch are the tallest people in the world. Oh, I've been there. Oh, my God. I've seen their stairs. It is ridiculous. actually just edit that. I had a comment and then forgot what it was, so <laughs> drop it out. This is all nonsense.